HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And here today is the first person to correctly identify the theme song. Yeah. <laughs> Emily Baltz. The Emily Baltz. <laughs> the non enigmatic <laughs> Emily Baltz. Um, thank you for being on. And thank you, Ben from Cookies. Thank you, Ben from Cookies. For really starting off our Tuesday afternoon in the right way. Um, enigmatic jokingly said that. That's a <laughs> funny word because it. It, it kind of undefines a person. You don't really know what they do. Um, sometimes they don't know what you do. <laughs> Often I know that you're doing too much or doing so much that it's it's it, it's inspiring uh, to make me do more. And Emily has been on the show before a long, long time ago. I think you were one of my first like five shows. Yeah. Fork and Design. Yeah. Um, but you've always been a very interesting and interactive person uh, in the realm of food and design. Uh, so much so that you've kind of combined those two terms into one and constructed food design um, from making products uh, that end up on tables or reconceptualizing the table itself. So there's no real good starting point because they're all entries into this wild world of Emily Baltz. So please tell me, <laughs> where in the world are you and what are you doing? <laughs> it's like mystery science yeah. theater in a kitchen or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yes, I think enigmatic comes from the fact that 
well, I have this horrible problem of being an omnivore, so I truly do love making and experiencing things. And my personal history, you know, is my mom's French and my dad's American, and I grew up outside of Chicago. So in the summers, we'd go to France, and there we discovered gastronomy and cuisine. I had this awesome grandpa named Pierre Pupinck whose mission it was to educate his heathen American grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> and he addressed you as heathen American uh, he, grandchildren. Yes, though they somehow did. They bought uh, ketchup for us when we would come. And it was the only place in the world where we were allowed to dump ketchup on our spaghetti because they thought this was an American custom. <laughs> Little they know, it's more, I think, of Asian customs yeah. <laughs> than anything else. But my parents were horrified, but my grandparents would let us do this. So it was this funny anecdote. I was eating more like an American at times or whatever. <laughs> I was eating more junk food in France than I was in America. But regardless of that simple anecdote, I think that really... Um, that very much affected my personal identity and my cultural identity because there was a big difference when we grew up outside of Chicago. My mom cooked as a French person would cook. So we ate at 8 p.m. We had three courses. Um, and then that was very, very different than all of my friends, you know, who were eating at like 5 p.m. So they could go play baseball afterwards. And most of the foods were packaged and pre-prepared. So as we moved around, um, through these different cultures and different countries, food really started to become something that defined identity, you know, both as a culture and then both personally. Um, and that was really the, that was my point of entry into, into work. I'm fascinated by culture. I'm fascinated by the behaviors and the rituals that we humans construct together that start to define, you know, group behaviors, um, social means, colors, forms. And I studied, I actually first studied screenwriting. Uh, I was really interested in being able to tell stories about human psychology and emotions. And then I was, uh, you know, this like super headstrong 21-year-old who didn't want to work for anyone else. And <laughs> I come from a family of photographers. So I've always had a camera, so I started photographing. And photographing led me into having like waitressing jobs and cocktail jobs. And I fell into the world of food and I really loved it. It was like this amazing theater at the same time, you know. And I got to be a part of it. And you could, like, touch it and feel it. Um, and I always have believed that the hand is the instrument of the mind. So for me, the food space was this place to both experiment, create, make communities. You know, it became so holistic that it was all that I wanted to do. So I went back to school and I got a degree in industrial design so I could learn how to make these things come to life or these stories come to life. And that's where I am today. You know, it's bringing – it kind of – I bring together all my skills and someone uh, once called me a food narrator more than anything else. And a lot of the times I think of the things or the objects that I make as props for the stories that I want to tell. Um, because everything in my life always has some kind of narrative to it. You know, I'm inspired by people. I'm inspired by their narratives. I'm inspired by where they come from and why they do things. And that's pretty much the point of entry, I think, into my practice. And food is this great material and this great way to bring people together around a table, to have them talk to each other. And I do, in some sort of strange utopian way, really believe that that's the way that you solve problems, too. If you just actually sit down and share together. You know, we have these stupid buttons on our screen now that do this, but that doesn't work. Like, like, like. <laughs> like, 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 share, 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 share. No, if you sit down and you talk to someone... Um, you're actually doing more than just verbal communication. You know, there's bodily communication. You're hearing things. You're smelling things. You're touching things. You're tasting things. And so you have this full body stimulation that starts to create really impactful moments. 
And I think that's more important than ever, you know? And that's where I think that as designers, the food space is such an important space to address because this material, hopefully we're enacting that ritual three times a day, right? We're ingesting it in the Western world or in first world countries. Um, and within those moments, you know, you're affecting, yes, your nutrition and your caloric intake, but you're also affecting your emotions, you're affecting your relationships, you're affecting politics, you're affecting all sorts of economics. Um, and that's actually, those are spaces that designers work in, you know, and I think that's the big, food design is nothing new, actually. It's been around forever. It's the second that you start to manipulate and consider the transformation of a material, you're designing it. Design is just the assembly of multiple parts, right? And you're trying to bring them together holistically to be able to communicate a, a certain message, a certain intent. And that means that you actually have to have a really wide knowledge of many, many things. Because when you design anything, yeah, you're maybe I'm making a glass or a bottle. So I need to know about the material properties. I need to know about the manufacturing of that vessel. But I also then need to start to think about, well, what is this vessel going to do when I share it with someone else? Um, what kind of feeling do I want it to have? What sort of form is representative of that feeling? You know, Because it becomes literally, once again, the prop to the story that I want to engage in or create. And so that's when you start, I think, delving more into the artistic side of the practice. Um, and needless to say, then there's a whole layer of psychology that comes yeah. along with mediating relationships and manufacturers and clients and all of that. So design was this place that, you know, it very much suited, I think, my omnivorous love of making many things, of talking to many people and of actually just being alive. You know, I think that's the beauty of being a human is that you get to use all of your senses and animals as well. But with humans, we have this added layer of emotional I think creativity that for some reason we keep wanting to enact and transform and make yeah. and do. <laughs> I mean, you use the word utopian. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that is something that maybe we hope to achieve someday. Um, but often design, especially in a, I love the word foodscape setting, is almost utilitarian. Um, and if it's not, it's almost this, what the fuck is this moment? Um, and I'm going to harken back to the days of R for D. For those of you that know that acronym uh, or don't, uh, Room for Dessert will go yes. far. I think my, my first introduction to you wasn't, you know, me physically meeting you, but seeing your physical work on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, you made this great collage of imagery of the, the, the people, and there are ma many influential people in both our lives that came from Room for, D for Dessert. Uh, will Goldfarb, Pam Young, R Rob Truitt, you know. Um, seeing their handicraft, seeing their work, seeing their manipulations and, and you know, starting the conversation there. Um, did people understand that conversation? Was it ahead of its time? And what were you doing there? <laughs> That's it. What were you doing there? <laughs> what was I doing there? So for those of us who don't know what Room for Dessert was, it was a molecular, uh, molecular gastronomy dessert bar in Nolita in the year 2004. Right, I think so. Oh, four, yeah. Oh, five. Four, four, five. yeah. So I was in graduate school then at Pratt Institute, and I really wanted to work on a restaurant project with a real live chef. So I was reading all of the restaurant reviews, and I came across this one that uh, in New York Magazine, I think, and it was a review of Crew Restaurant at the time, where Will, this man Will Goldfarb, was a pastry chef, and the restaurant review was brilliant, except for the dessert review, and they killed him. <laughs> they totally killed him. And I read it, and 
I was so inspired because here was this man, and they killed him because he was trying to recreate a day at the beach at St. Bart's using like a spray bottle and all sorts of molecular gastronomy techniques. And as a design student at the time, I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I do. Finally, here's my point of entry into this world because it was about materials, it was about technique, it was about processes, and it was about telling a story. Um, so I immediately called the restaurant and I asked to speak to Chef Will Goldfarb and they put him on the phone and he said, hello. And I said, hello, my name is Emily Baltz. I'm a student at Pratt Institute and I just read your review. <laughs> and he said, oh, and I said, I think you're a genius. And he said, huh? <laughs> I said, I think I want to meet with you tomorrow. So we met and um, Will basically handed me a Bible of his philosophy which was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And to this day, I still think he's one of the most brilliant chefs in the world. And he lives in Bali, so we should all go there quickly. <laughs> um, and that's how our relationship began. And we ended up, he worked, he was sort of my advisor on this project. And then um, little did I know that he got fired and had a baby the next day. It was like this crazy explosion, testament to his power of resilience. Because a few months later, he opened... Um, this dessert bar, which really was, I think, ahead of its time. Um, there wasn't there wasn't as much culture around molecular gastronomy in New York at that time, or really this fusion of art and food. And I think that's a space that probably has affected all of us who've worked with Will and who've come from there. Um, that it very much, I think, that kind of education and that sort of formation really spoke to all of us and made us realize that food is way more than just an ingredient, right? And Will has a philosophy that takes you through ingredients to technique, philosophy, and emotion. Um, and all of those things together, I think that's what I'm really interested in being able to explore and also communicate through my practice is that you, food is not just food, right? You consume so much. We consume emotions. We consume science. We consume history. Food is everything, Right. And so if we start, yes, it's wonderful to have organic carrots so readily available now. But, you know, there's a wealth of other information that surrounds that that we're also consuming. And that's where I think just greater awareness has to be brought. Um, yeah. So. No, it's, you know, <laughs> that, that space was very special to you. Um, yeah. Aside from just being room for dessert. That, you know, your entry point into, into Will, into this whole world was an experience being recreated, uh, St. Bart's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, trying to imbue that kind of, I don't know, everything that surrounds that, uh, being there, that scent, that smell, that synesthesia. And then it turned into another restaurant years after what happens when, where you were curating, creating an experience. What was that like? You know, uh, that difference from, trying to transmit something that is known to creating something that was unknown. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, a lot of that inspiration has always been, you know, looking at the plate and looking at what goes beyond the plate. That's what food design is, right? Because food design is not cooking. There are chefs who train their entire lives to do this work and do it so incredibly well. And it's not something that, <laughs> that needs to be replaced. But I think looking beyond that and with that same intent of saying, you know, consumption happens beyond the plate, beyond the ingredient, beyond the technique. Everything that surrounds you is also feeding you. And what happens when was a uh, pop-up restaurant project that I did with Chef John Frazier at Dovetail Restaurant. And he was he only had Dovetail at the time. 
and Ella Kunos DeVos of the Metrics Design Group. And that really was, it was kind of my, the first time of thinking about, you know, what does it mean to dine? And I think all of us worked really collaboratively in the beginning to come up with this idea of saying, how can music, space, food, service, all influence taste? And that's what, what happens when was. Um, what happens when <laughs> kind of you bring a chef <laughs> outside of the kitchen, right? What happens when you start um, thinking about how the food is inspired by the space, for example. Some of that was actually the point of departure. John didn't always come up with the menu first. You know, We would have the theme and then he would cook for it. So all of that, I think it was very much an experiment. Um, and I think that it was great for me personally, it was greatly inspired by Will and seeing how kind of his nostalgia and his memory and his process would work, which was my first point of entry into eating in any kind of that way, you know, where you really taking like emotion and memory and starting to dimensionalize it. And what happens when attempted to do that? We did it for five months with five different movements, we called them, and each of them, you know, was a different theme. And each of those themes was expressed as a different interior design, a different sound design, different menu design. And so it was kind of like walking into these giant landscapes, um, sensory landscapes, where you started to be influenced, you know, and, and stimulated not just by what was on your plate, but also really evidently understanding that every time something changed, right, the whole feeling changed. Because we experience that every time you go into a restaurant, right? Whether you know it or not. Yeah, the pizza at Roberta's is great, but, you know, the tattooed waiters also add to the experience of or the taste of that pizza. <laughs> The wooden walls, the brick floors, all of these are materials and textures that affect our senses, and that is eating. And I think that's something that we're not, I think the public is not as consciously aware of that. And I think doing this changed environment that would change every 30 days, hopefully kind of the underlying intent was to say, hey, look what happens when things change, right? Does the, does the taste change? Does the atmosphere change? There's no right or wrong answer at all. But it's just a great, trying to foster a greater awareness of what the elements are that start to manipulate you, inform you, um, create these different emotional experiences. And we're talking mainly about outside forces yeah. at the moment. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and eliminate the exterior and look inside ourselves and talk about the emotions of the food landscape. Mm. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today.
Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Time flies with Emily Baltz. There's never enough time. Oh, Mystery Science Theater will create a time capsule that will take yeah, us back in time. Exactly. We're going to lock ourselves in here. Joe, you're going to have to try to bust that door down. We have so much to say. But we, we're, we're talking about the exterior, the, the things that are constructed around us. But this this lovely book in front of me, love, food book, L.O.V.E. It's funny when you actually type that in Amazon, other things come (laughs) up or in the Google. So you have to watch out a little bit. Um, But this love food book, aside from being an award winning book now at uh, in Paris, what what, what was the the fair and the accolade that you received? Yeah, well, we won best first cookbook for the Prix Gourmand, which uh, every year there's a culinary fair in Paris, culinary book fair. And so I'm super, super excited. Um, I made this book last year, actually. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> Ridiculous. So I didn't see you last year? Yeah, yeah, I was totally... I should have my own plane. That yeah. would be nice. If there is a brand out there, please sponsor me. <laughs> no, it was incredible, and it really was a labor of love. I made it with this woman, Caroline Boisseau, who's an amazing, amazing editor, and um, a, publisher, a French publisher, Hervé Chopin Edition, who's based in Paris. And... It started with, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work in and around aphrodisiacs for the last few years. The Museum of Sex originally hired me to research an exhibit, and that turned into more work with them. Um, And actually the launch of a bar that's coming soon in New York City. But with all that information and with all this research, what I ended up seeing was that, you know, these ingredients that people keep looking for, people would hear about the project and they'd always say like, oh, you have the best job. What can I, what can I take? Or like, what can I give her to make her fall in love with me? (laughs) (laughs) There's no magic bullet because what is revealed, if you do any very even like Google research, is that it's all myths, right? It's a lot of kind of this placebo effect of these narratives, which goes back to my earlier point is that, you know, food is not just this ingredient. We really are seducing and and stimulate being stimulated because of more than just you know a, a cherry or an oyster. It really is full body experiences, and some of those things have to do with the physical properties of the food, but most of them have to do with kind of the the narratives that surround them. Right, what we start to weave starts to tickle both like our tongue and our mind, and so that was the impetus for this book, and uh, that's reason for calling it the Love Food Book. With the L.O.V.E to kind of show that it's deconstructed, right? All these things come together to create love. So we asked 15 different chefs and mixologists to make recipes that were their expressions of love to reveal the connection between food, ingredients, emotion. And what came of it are these amazing, there's 49 different recipes in there, sweet, savory, and cocktails that each of them come with obviously a full technical recipe, but also a short narrative. And then I worked with each chef to make these, I call them gesture drawings. They were these kind of abstract tableaus that show 
that really reveal their creative process and their emotional process as they're cooking. And I think what comes out of it, I mean, I'm so proud of it, but even more honored to have been able to work with all of these people. You know, some of these, yeah, there is Will Goldfarb yeah. in it. It had to, I, he had to be in it. I mean, he started my career and so many others, you know. And there is Robert Trude in there, who's now one of the great chefs in New York City. And there is Pam. And there is Pam in there. But yeah. from New York to Paris, Brussels, Bali. Yep. Um, obviously, a lot of people emote differently. What What were the analogous things that you found out? I mean, there must have been some kind of chord, this similar, you know, overriding emotion that carried throughout this book. Yeah. You know, that's something I ask myself a lot because I also think that it's one. I was also curious about it. I think it is sort of, you know, it's the human holy grail. It's <laughs> bizarrely what sets us apart from animals. We fall in love and we do crazy things for that too. And, and I think that there is, there's a great symbiosis between the emotion of love and cooking because to cook, you really have to love it. Well, what's the craziest thing you've done for love in regards to food? In regards to food? Like what have I cooked or did I run after that boy (laughs) with a bowl of cherries on my head? (laughs) Have you? No, I've never run after a boy with a bowl of cherries on my head. I definitely have tried to woo people with different foods. Um, and I've definitely gone to buy things in very strange, faraway places and brought them in suitcases. <laughs> we'll talk about that after the show. <laughs> yeah. You know, though, I think to go back to your question, that um, the one kind of red thread throughout it is actually that it's about commitment and that there are just choices. And that's maybe a less romantic definition. But each of these things have, you know, there's a there's topography to all of it, right? None of these stories and none of these ingredients are particularly sweet or romantic. They're actually all like there's all a little there's a little bitterness in it. There's a little ah, there's a little pain in all of it, which shows us that I think and the, and then the things that come out of it are so beautiful, and to be able to get through that pain and to get through that bitterness to get through the edge, there really is just a decision for all of these chefs, right? Is that there was a commitment made to this craft because there was love invested in it for whatever reason. And all of those reasons are so personal. Um, but something in there strikes a chord. And I think that's the, that's the kind of the highest, highest level that I can see through all of it. With so many amazing talents. Yeah. And obviously fantastic food. Was there something specific, be it an ingredient or a plate in full, that that wooed you in a way that you didn't expect? You know, there's, I think, specifically Kobe de Resmertz from Indewolf. And I talk about this recipe a lot because it is one of my favorites. He has this amazing dish, which is um, a pigeon dish, in which he takes pigeon and ferments it for two weeks. It's stuffed with hay and then takes it out and cooks it in hay butter. And you eat it, and it's a sort of like bittersweet, funky, melty, delicious thing. And you see the little legs of the pigeon plated, and it's plated very, very naturally. And his story is that he grew up in the farm that he's cooking in now, and he had these two friends when he was little, and they were um, these pigeons, right? And one day his mother came to him, and she said, Kobe, we have to kill the pigeons. And he said, why? She said, because we have to eat. And I think that that's a part. It also goes back to this idea of commitment. Um but of release at the same time, you know, there was love in it, but there was sacrifice built into it as well. 
And that's why he has that dish on his menu. It's kind of this homage to his first love in a sense. And he called the dish Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> you know, it's on the menu at Indowolf. You should go you should go eat it. It's incredible. But to hear to hear the narrative behind it and to understand where that flavor came from. Um you know, I think that's the incredible part that love can inspire so many different tastes and so many different feelings and so many different missions. You know, what he's put together at Indewolf is, I, th- I think, one of the greatest meals that I've had over the last two years. It's really, really beautiful. Um, so you talk about loving a pigeon. Yeah. You know, walking around New York, that's not something you'd expect. No. <laughs> someone, someone falling, you know, uh, head over heels of these kind of vermin this this city fowl um were there other ingredients that unlike you know cherries and oysters that you found yourself putting in this book that you wouldn't have assumed you know a place in it yeah well i didn't put any of the ingredients in there the chefs did the things i was most surprised by is the pastry section that there are things like crickets black trumpet mushrooms uh jerusalem artichokes (laughs) there's very little chocolate there are very little strawberries. I think there's two recipes that have chocolate and strawberries in it. Um, those are surprising to me because it shows that love actually exists. And those are dark vegetables in most of those, right? So it exists in all of these different places. If you just open your eyes, there's beauty in all of that. And actually the most surprising and amazing and delicious tastes, I think, come from those come from that surprise. So you have surprise, but you also have contrast. We'll talk about these love potions. <laughs> yeah. You just put these up uh, in collaboration with, is it Grain Design? Yeah, Grain Design. They're a design studio in Seattle. Old friends of mine, Chelsea Green, James Minola. And so we're, the design fair is this weekend um, in New York. And so we collaborated on this project that's called Love Potions in which we extracted different ingredients from the book. And each of the ingredients, each of these chapters is prefaced by a pantry section. And so the ingredients come with an emotion. And that emotion is derived either from a historical anecdote that I learned through research or personal narratives from the chefs that we learned through our process. And so while doing this, I thought, oh, it'd be fun to make these sort of like vodka infusions. Everybody still wants love potion number nine, (laughs) whether you admit it or not. (laughs) Um, But what would happen? So as I started to make these infusions with different ingredients from the book, suddenly when I started assigning the, the related emotions to them, these amazing, these amazing names came out like hateful wonder. That's vanilla and matcha, you know, <laughs> and and they're delicious. But they really start to be, um, or like angry dependence, you know, <laughs> embarrassed Blood lust. Blood orange and chocolate. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Embarrassed lust, passion fruit and gooseberry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's really incredible. I think that's the other role, you know, that's the other ingredient that goes into flavor is that once you start assigning language to it, your point of entry then is different. It colors it in a whole new way. Um, but there's a surprising semi-truth to it, you know, that none of these things are beautiful. Nothing is easy. Nothing is balanced. Um, but that tension is actually what makes them beautiful. Is that considered, what is it, Jolie Lod? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, with all these different ideas, uh, influences, um, interjections, mm-hmm. um, I was going to say alliterations because I did all those eyes already, <laughs> but you're teaching a, a course in France about food design. Where do you start? What, what, is, the, what is someone else's entry point into this grander idea? Mm-hmm. I think that there are a few different entry points and... I will probably borrow from 
Mr. Will Goldfarb again. This is like homage to Will. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> can we also say that people can still sign up for this class, correct? Yes, you can. So it's run through the School of Visual oh. Arts. It's part of the summer program. And you can go to productsofdesign.sva.edu. And spend the summer in yeah. Champagne in, Ex- in Reims. In, in Reims, yeah. the capital of Champagne. Actually, it's sva.productsofdesign.edu. I apologize. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> um and so the idea is to bring people to Reims. And France obviously has a long culture of um, of gastronomy, right? And so they've been practicing different techniques and methodologies and flavors for a very long time. And food design is something that actually is more current there. And there's an amazing school in Reims, the School of Art and Design there. And a culinary design program has been founded by a man named Marc Bretillot, who's a food designer. And so where to start, I think, that was why I was interested in creating this program with them is, um, um, you know, America is actually one of the places that has the most amount of designed food in the world. We made up junk food. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a book called junk foodie that I know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, who made that yeah, thing? Crazy. I don't know. That was very strange that that girl <laughs> made that. <laughs> yeah, I did it. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and though it's baffling to me that you actually, you can't take a class in, in this. Right. So who does that who is in charge of designing our food? Marketers, salespeople. Right? It becomes a brand exercise instead of a human exercise. You we put these things in our bodies. That's fine with sunglasses and shoes and cars. You, you put know? sunglasses in your body? No, I don't. But I mean <laughs> when I start I get vehement about this. I've never eaten sunglasses. No. No good. You either, huh? Not that well, I know. Well, we have of. one thing yeah. in common. <laughs> but um I start thinking about these things and having practiced in design for so long, you realize that these are very complex systems for things to get made and produced and sold and distributed in the world. That's what designers help do. And that there's no education around the design, the production, the manufacturing, and the distribution of food is really frightening to me because it directly impacts our natural environment, right? We grow these things that we put in our body. And there needs to be there needs to be greater awareness about it. And so we can have multiple perspectives and multiple practitioners so we can have a diverse ecosystem because that's, I think that's the health of the future. You know, siloed industries won't work. Mass market won't work. We need smaller industries. We need smaller communities and food is a great way to begin that. And so I think anybody who's interested in this, um, you know, this class is one way to be able to start practicing in it. And be you a chef, be you a designer, a sculptor, a business person, there's space within the world of food to practice. And we all need to practice together. And that's where I think a class like this will be looking at, yes, ingredients, um, where things come from, how they're grown, what that setting is in. You know, there's an amazing woman, Claire Harton, who teaches alongside me at SVA, and she teaches food systems, which is another way that designers can practice. You know, it doesn't have to be about these things that you put on the table that are meant for pleasure. You know, beauty is also found in systems and how you negotiate and design these systems more than ever before is a place that you see lots of designers practicing. Do you think there's this fear because you talk about food design that um, some people assume that it's food engineering, you know, and and when you start talking about that, you start talking about GMOs, you start Mm -hmm. talking about manipulating an ingredient and almost eliminating the environment that it was in. Um, they're distinctly different things, right? Yeah, very different things. And I don't think that those those differences will continue to exist, right? We will always need engineers. Well, and you think about it very simply. You think about 
you know, it's amazing to to think about it, an ear of corn and a Cheeto. And basically, at this, at this place in our world, those two things are made in kind of the same way. They're both engineered. Um, they're both thought about the form and the shape. Don't tell me that you're not genetically modifying the shape of your kernels, because you are. Um, and And how you're packaging them and selling them and branding them and talking about them. And these are, someone is sitting there and saying, okay, it should, the radius here should be about 0.08 smaller. And the color, that yellow just should be a little bit brighter. You know, the same thing goes on with the Cheeto. Um, Paola Antonelli at the Museum of Modern Art gives a great lecture about pasta design. You know, it's not just America that does this, right? Italy has been making amazing pasta shapes for years. So we have all these different relationships that go into the the building, the designing, the making, and then the sharing of our food, which is a whole other part of that practice. You know, you have restaurant designers that are part of this, tabletop designers. Um, all of this is part of food design. And I think the and then maybe the baseline of this, which I tell people when they say, well, what is this workshop going to be about? Well, yeah, this is the whole ecosystem that you live in. So I have, you know, a very big vision but in a course like this, actually, what if I told you, okay, redesign a sandwich. What would a sandwich be if it wasn't a sandwich? What is a sandwich? How do I start thinking about what it means to layer things together to maybe use my hands to bring it to my mouth? And if we start reinventing those behaviors and if we start looking at different ingredients and different processes and different ways of sharing it, suddenly a whole wealth of possibilities opens up in front of us and that's something that, you know, every kid across America hopefully is in some way experiencing, right, at lunchtime. I know I did every day growing up. Um, and just imagine with a little twist on it, suddenly there's a little difference in your day. And life is made of moments, you know, it's not made of, <laughs> of even of days. And when you start to affect those little moments, that's what starts to create new behavior. And if we can do that with good intent, I think with, um, with joy, with, with delight, with, with, I think, the true want and need to be able to, to educate each other and do that for the goodness of, of the humankind. Because to be perfectly honest, we're kind of screwed right now. You know? <laughs> so I do have a, a desire to help make it better. And I think that that's where, that's where the food space can really contribute to those relationships. I mean, we could stop right there, but I want to go a little bit further <laughs> because there must be something, some small little change that you want to make this what do you pinpoint as that, that, that singular effect? Or are there single moments throughout the day or the, the, these, you know, slight protocols that you want to change? Do you look at those and work backwards or do you try to make something and see how that affects the rest of the world? Yeah. You mean like, is there a grand philosophy of the things that I start with and work down from? Yes, I would. I mean, the, my my greatest philosophy, I think, would be to start defining that food is food is history food is science food is emotion food is fashion food is sound food is a multi-sensory experience and that is always that's always my point of departure you know food is love that's what this book is about food is branding that's what my junk food cookbook is about you know um these are all personal motivations and i would say as a in my personal practice i think Sometimes that philosophy comes through exploratory processes. You know, sometimes I start with the idea and then work backwards. Sometimes the idea emerges through working. I think you talk to any, any creative and, um, 
you know, I don't think that there's any right way. I don't think that there is any linear process in the world, at least not for me. <laughs> um, and that for me is an, is the overarching structure. If that's the one thing I could potentially just leave this world with is hopefully greater vocabulary, greater understanding that you feed yourself in so many different ways and that the impact of your consumption means so much more than a calorie. And I think especially in this country, that's something that I would love to be able to help communicate and educate. Can I just reiterate the impact of your consumption, <laughs> how important that actually is yeah. because it, it, it is both a permanent and temporal thing. Because if you continue to do it in this rote and everyday fashion, you continue to uh, put that in your daily routine. Um, but if you change that every once in a while, that allows for diversity, that allows for change, that allows for new things to take its place, maybe even better things. So, you know, every little thing adds up, diverges. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, and that's, I think, the interesting part is that I've never been, I'm not one of the people who's ever wanted to be a chef. I'm, you know, I'm a good cook. I like eating, but I'm not a foodie. <laughs> I, I don't like go on crazy voyages except for to woo young men, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, I think what I'm more interested in is, is the behavioral side of, of eating. And I think, um, using it to create, as I said before, more pleasure, more joy, but if you do that with awareness and with intent, you know, and a simple thing is even like think about all the diets that everyone in the world has gone on, right? You can't lose 15 pounds in a day. And in a healthy environment, you could lose that in four months, right? Four months, five months. And the only way that you do that is just by incrementally changing little tiny things. And what does happen, exactly what you say, is that suddenly a wealth of new possibilities opens up, a wealth of new flavors that you never even realized. Um, and you reach your goal and you're happier, Right. And I think that's a it's a simple, really functional, easy way to start looking at food. And then you think of it in all sorts of different landscapes. Well, what if I changed my mindset about, um, you know, how I deal with my boss at work and I'll do this little thing every single day. Right. Because I did it with my food. I can do it with this, too. I think that that impact really starts to resonate and ripple out in so much because it's muscle memory you know food's the thing that affects it affects our internal organs and therefore it affects our chemistry affects our biology it affects our psychology which in turn is our emotional state the way we navigate the world so i i can't think of any other place to start <laughs> and i have a, a horrible affliction to like see huge problems you know or huge solutions and food is a way for me personally to really focus it in a very fundamental fashion and give myself some constraints and say, okay, start here. You know, I retardedly in high school, one, I'm most likely to save the world because nobody knew what to do with that award. And so I went around and I campaigned for myself and I was like, that's cool. I'll save the world. And so I won with like 10 votes or something, <laughs> but I, you know, it's probably the American part of me that really does want to help something and help affect some change. Because I saw how it's affected me in so many different ways in my life, you know, in the way that I grew up, also in my health and in my psychology. It, and it has changed everything. And I think when you have personal experiences with it, there's nothing more, there's meaning there, you know. And when there's meaning, just like when there's love, you have a commitment in place. You really kind of can't do anything else. <laughs> And it all starts at emilybaltz.com. <laughs> <laughs> that is the beginning. That is the impetus. Learn about her. Learn about all the amazing projects that she's doing. The Love Food Book. So much more. 
this will not be the last time and looking forward to figuring out what food is someday. Yeah, me too. Excellent. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turco. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for